0: something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host Craig McManus. Join us in this episode as we explore the harmonious blend of beauty and functionality in the garden. Molly Hendry is a Birmingham native whose expertise as a horticulturalist and landscape architect has taken her across the globe. We'll unravel the fascinating tale of Molly's botanical adventures from her prestigious role as the 2016-17 Royal Horticultural Society's Interchange Fellow in the UK to her pivotal years shaping the future of the Birmingham Botanical Gardens. Now, Molly has planted the seeds for her own garden design studio, Roots and Ramblings where she designs enchanting spaces for passionate hands-in-the-dirt gardeners. Discover Molly's bespoken design philosophy tailored to meet the unique needs of each client and gain insights into the intricate synergy between gardens and landscape architecture. Stay tuned to learn about the geological wonders shaping our gardens and Molly's affection for the exquisite white cloud muley grass. This is episode 135, Roots and Ramblings, Cultivating Harmony in the Garden, with Molly Hendry on the Garden Question podcast. Molly, does beauty in a garden have a function?
1: Oh, I love this question. I've been thinking a lot about this question in the past week. Because I think a lot of times a lot of the discourse around gardening or even in landscape architecture and a lot of times it's to do with the function, like the ecology or how it's handling stormwater. Or there's a lot of quantifiable things that you can look at a garden, which are very valid and very important. But I do think it's interesting to look at beauty and does it have a function in and of itself? Is it just like a cherry on top? Great if it's there. Okay, if it's not, as long as it's hitting all these other numbers, I think it absolutely has a function. I structured my graduate thesis around this question, especially in a garden, because what draws people to a garden is that it's beautiful, that it changes throughout the seasons. Gardens even change throughout the day as the light changes. Does it matter that it's beautiful or does it just matter that it's attracting a certain number of insects or it's food for a certain number of wildlife species? I think that we can sometimes can divorce ourselves out of that equation as humans. As humans, we're really drawn to beautiful things and different people might find different things beautiful, but I think at the end of the day, beauty offers us a form of hope. And it's like this rhythm to a garden and to the landscape as it changes through the seasons. I think is just really hopeful. And then as we engage with it through cultivating it, I think that offers another form of hope that we can plant a seed and a flower will grow from it. There's this kind of engagement and then nature kind of responds and we can cut the flower and arrange it. There's this relationship with that. I absolutely think there is a function to beauty, even if that function is just capturing our hearts and imaginations for a place. I think there's a beauty and a function to that.
0: I've heard you say that gardens are deeply relational. Would you speak Mm -hmm. to that?
1: Yes. I'm just one of those people that I feel something before I really know where it's coming from or why. And it's almost like a lot of my research is trying to like dig down to what's making me feel a certain way. (laughs) I did my bachelors in horticulture and then spent a year doing several different internships. One of Winter Tour Gardens in Delaware, then for a design build company out in Texas. I went and traveled through France studying gardens for a semester. And so I'd had all these experiences in gardens, especially living and working at Winter Tour that summer of 2014, where I woke up with a garden, worked in it all day. The interns, we all lived in a little house in the garden. Then I would watch the sunset over the garden, got to know the gardeners and the history of the garden. It was just such a different experience than just visiting a garden. It was so personal and I just fell in love with that place in a way that I'd never really fallen in love with a place before, probably since like my childhood home and that landscape. I felt that a garden was equally personal and relational, but I didn't really know how to put my finger on it, like why and why that was important. I came back after that year and was doing my graduate research and my thesis I called my thesis just the garden project because in the professional discourse or in the professional landscape architecture no one really talked about gardens it was always about huge green spaces public spaces a lot of civic spaces some of our projects in studio were like 800 acre tracts of land which is so valid and interesting, but I was so drawn to the garden, this deeply personal relationship with a place. I began asking some of those questions, like, why does it matter? I remember I did my midterm presentation my first semester and one of my horticulture professors came to my presentation, which was like so kind. He just stood in the back of the room and a lot of the other landscape architecture professors started firing different questions at me, doing the best I could as a 22-year-old to answer them then i remember dr williams in the back room he had to leave to go teach a class and he just left a piece of paper and he wrote on it i think what you're trying to say is that gardens are a relationship i had finished the whole critique portion of my presentation he left that piece of paper with someone i just pinned that on my board and i was like that's exactly what i'm trying to say that's how i've tried to, to structure my studio is I think a lot of times you can think of design as just, okay, you go, you do the site analysis, you come up with a big, beautiful design on paper, make all the notes you need to have, you hand it off to a contractor, they put it in the ground and bada bing, you've done a design. The more I've been around gardens, worked in gardens, I've just seen you've gotten a snowball started down the hill, (laughs) but it's not done. And I believe that the best gardens are the ones in which you continue to engage with over time because to me gardens are a relationship between a person and a place and they're so tied to the gardener as much as they are tied to the landscape and the site that it's in because you could argue that once a gardener leaves a garden there's something intrinsically that's going to change you can try and capture the spirit of that place and the way that they gardened but it's not going to be the same as when that gardener gardened that garden I think there is just this deep connection between people and places through gardens. I mean, it is a relationship because it's not just nature. You're not just like putting a fence around a pristine piece of nature and calling that a garden. There's some kind of insertion. There's some kind of touch, a human touch that you put in there. But also not completely fabricated from man's hands. There is this element of like things grow and they change and there's storms that come or cultural Kind of like the soil and the sun and the water, it can all change and grow. And there's things that nature kind of pushes back on you with. And as a gardener, you get to push against that. There's this kind of tug of war happening in a garden between man and nature. And that's been a journey for me. It's not one that I've arrived and I've figured out everything. I think I will spend a lifetime trying to really put my finger on what a garden is and how you create great gardens. But at the root of it, I do believe that they are relationship.
0: What is something you've just recently realized in your relationship with a garden?
1: That's a great question. Yeah. It's interesting because I have gardens that I've gotten to call the shots in and make the decisions. And then I have a lot of gardens that I'm hired to come alongside them and build a garden for them. So it's not necessarily about me and how I'm going to engage with it, but it's about them. Recently, just starting my own studio and getting the privilege to walk with people through the gardens and just hear them talk. I've realized there might be a gardenia that they have from their mom's garden. And now her mom's gone. And it's a little piece to her mom that she has left that's really important to her. Or they just have their grandkids that are going to come stay with them. Maybe they live out of town and where their family gets to spend time and eat meals out in the garden is really important to them. Or one of my clients, her dad's confined to a wheelchair and she wants her dad to be able to get to the back garden for her daughter's two-year-old birthday party. We're thinking about hardscapes. They're thinking about their life and the things that care about them. But it's not always just about having that picture-perfect picture for a magazine. A lot of times it's so that you're creating the backdrop for their lives to take place in. Gardens are really powerful in that way that One shrub can tie someone back to their mother who is now gone, or how you choose to pave a path can pave the way for a dad to take part in his granddaughter's birthday. I think a lot of times I can just think about things purely aesthetically or how it's matching the architecture or, or what cool new cultivar of plants we want to try out there. But when I walk and talk with people, it's really interesting hearing what really matters to them. Those play a huge part in what makes a garden great. It's not just about what it looks like in a picture, but it's how it infuses a person's life. Even in my garden, I look out, I use it as my laboratory, and I have so many memories. I'm looking out my window here, and there's this giant magnolia tree that I can remember climbing with my two best friends growing up and our border collies waiting for us at the bottom or birthday parties in the backyard or just fall spending it in the back of the fire pit with friends growing up. There's just all these memories. And there's also the way that my family hopes to use this garden in the future. Now that there's green kids and one of my sisters lives far away. And so we really hold that family time. We really cherish it. I've been thinking a lot about that and how you can allow your life and things that you care about to also structure and impact the garden.
0: Would you walk us through how you seek to understand your homeowner or client and their mm-hmm. gardening relationship?
1: It's interesting. A lot of times I show up at a client's house and I just say, all right, here's what we're going to do. I would love to just walk and you talk me through, I want to hear what you love. What are things that are causing you a headache? Where are opportunities that you think we could really make some changes? Then as we walk and talk, I pick up on different things. Like, ooh, okay, they seem to really like native plants or, okay, they want it to look really clean but they seem to also want it to have a wildness to it so how can we capture orderly frames with some whimsy sprinkled in there or i'll hear them saying certain things like okay it sounds like they like to entertain a lot that's really important to them or okay he works from home i need to be really cognizant of what he's looking out at his office window i just try to really listen at first that's also a trust building posture to take with a client. I've been really lucky that my clients hire me because they trust me as a professional and they trust my opinion. I also want them to know that I value how they see things and how they want to use things. A lot of times clients, they know what they like, but they don't know why. They know what their problems are, but they don't know how to get from the problem to a solution. So I'm the bridge there where it's my job to really listen to them. And that doesn't mean that I'm just like listening and drawing exactly what they're saying, but I'm listening for certain cues. I want to know how they live in the space, what's important to them. I try not to invite myself into their house, but a lot of times they will end up inviting me into their house because I will ask a ton of questions about what's behind certain windows or how they use certain doors. One client I was just at last week, I was really hung up on like, How do you get your trash from down here all the way up to the road? I could tell they were a little confused, like, why is she fixated on that? I had an image in my head of what I wanted the side garden to be. But the most frustrating thing is when your everyday weekly things become super hard because of this elaborate, ornate design. I want to make sure they can still live their everyday lives in relative comfort while also having beauty. Anyway, I try to just really understand at a high level what they care about, what their style is, what are certain things that they've been drawn to. And then I try to understand a very functional level how they live their lives. A lot of times they do invite me into their house and I will take pictures out certain windows to try and see how we can get that inside outside connection. Your kitchen sink as a mom, that's where a lot of these homeowners, like especially the women, are, they're spending all their time like, when they're cooking or they're caring for kids. And they like, that view out their kitchen window is really important. A lot of times people these days are working from home, so I want to know what that looks like, what rooms they're occupying, where do you spend time as a family, where do you eat your meals, where do you like to drink your coffee in the morning, when you entertain, what does that look like? And especially, I love to know like where they park their car and how they're coming to and from their house. Then I'll also ask them questions. A lot of times they might say, well, we were traveling somewhere, I'll be like, oh, where did you go? Because for me, where they choose to spend their free time and money really tells me a lot about what they value. Each client is different. Some are more private than others, and some kind of will give me a whole lay of the land. And some really are just looking for me to come in and do a pretty simple drawing. But then I try to have a sense of, like, ooh, okay, these are people I'm really connecting with that I think we see a lot of things the same way. And I'll try and dig deeper and see like where are some areas where I might be like push them a little bit. At the end of the day, I want to really create a garden that feels like it's of them and not just something that I would like to have at my house but it's something that they will really be able to use that they will really love and something that they will really want to be in and engage with that's my number one goal some people that might be like okay I'm probably going to be able to move the needle with them having a couple of pots in their front porch that they'll plant each season and that's okay some people are like just not in the phase of life to have a really intense garden that you're having to garden a lot Some people I sense, ooh, they're curious, but they're maybe a little intimidated. How can I lower the bar of entry? and design this garden in a way where it piques their curiosity and kind of makes them want to engage with it on another level than they originally thought that they could or wanted to. So I love those clients where I can be like, ooh, you maybe didn't know that you were a gardener. I think that you might be. I really enjoy the relational aspect of it.
0: I would think you're assessing also the amount of time that person can actually spend in the garden and interacting in the garden, aren't you?
1: Yes. I like to get a good read on how much energy they want to put into their garden. And a lot of people, especially in Birmingham, they have what I call a moblo go" crew who comes and cuts the grass edges, fertilizes, does pre-emergent. I just show them like, okay, if you could outsource the maintenance part of the garden where you're just, the grass is the same as it was. Outsource outsourced the more mundane parts of the garden. And then that frees you up to maybe have a little border of some perennials that you can cut and bring into the house or have some fruit trees that maybe you train in an interesting way. I try and show them not all the work in the yard has to be really like just boring. Some people really enjoy mowing the lawn because it can be very meditative. I don't want to take that away from people if they enjoy doing that, but I try and open their eyes to just the joy that they're that it can be to engage with a place and to have an idea and see it change through the seasons and change through the years that it can do that when you have a plan that allows for it to grow and change and a lot of times you just need to have good bones to the gardens I also like to create flexible spaces so there might be a couple and they're just in the throes of raising really young kids that is a full-on job <laughs> At the end of the day, when you have kids down for a nap, you're just wanting to sit. You're probably not wanting to go out and get knee deep in a garden bed. That, I don't fault anyone for that. It might just be you have a couple of pots on your stoop and you do some seasonal flowers in there. And every time you come home and leave, it just gives you a little bit of joy that would have been there otherwise. Flexible. If you have an off season, it's a crazy season of life. You can throw some pots in the garage and put them out later when you do have the bandwidth to plant them up. That is an art, is sensing kind of what phase of life people are in. I do have a lot of clients who are empty nesters. They're more settled in their phase of life. They're winding down their careers. They have more time to put towards their garden. And a lot of times they're hungry To learn how to garden. They are maybe a little intimidated by it, but they kind of sense like, okay, we've had a landscape that like got us by. There was nice shrubs around the foundation, but I feel like it could be more. It could be more interesting. And I have the time and I want to learn. They want me to come over and help teach them how to engage with their garden. I really love those clients because the way that we design a garden that has a gardener that's ready and cares and is eager to learn, we can do so much with seasonality and just how it can even change through the years. I try to always have my antenna up when I'm sitting like, "Ooh, this is someone who really wants to go for it. And if we get them a plan that gets them really excited, I think sky's the limit for where this garden could go.
0: What's one of the ways that you enhance those type of gardens?
1: Yeah, actually just at a client this morning, they actually bought the husband's mother His parents had owned the house. And so there's this incredible family legacy there. There's these beautiful espalier camellias at the side of the house and a beautiful parterre. But there's these little opportunities where it's like we could plant something more interesting than Mondo, like under those camellias, or there's little holes in the parterre where we could have some color that comes and goes through the season against the backdrop of these really stiff structural boxwoods. Then you can sense this would have made a lot of sense in the 80s, but like now these trees are a little bit tired or I can sense like this was the it plant back when this landscape was originally done, but now we know it's possibly invasive. There's some of those where I have to go. Like today, what I did is I just went and spent time on the property after the initial consultation. I just tried to have my eye in for where there were some opportunities. There are some spots where there was just some pretty run-of-the-mill evergreen plants planted along the foundations, but like beautiful evergreen anchoring plants on either side. But We could pop out the middle bits and do something much more interesting in the middle. There's still the backdrop of the house and a clean line of the turf. And so you have still the structure there. Looking for those gaps, insert some more interest into there. That's what I have my eye. For this client, they spend a lot of time on the back porch and there's a pool. So, really understanding how they use the space. A little bit further up, there's a fire pit area. Well, beyond, there's this woodland edge area. This is pretty much just a backdrop that you're looking at. There's a lot of opportunity, there's a lot of bare ground out here. Instead of us just pine strawing it every single year, what if we planted a showstopper for each season of native species? So maybe we have native azaleas in the spring that light it up, or buckeyes that bloom in the summer. Or right now, the sourwoods and the black gums are turning bright red, and there's opportunity maybe for some southern maples back in there. So, really trying to think about where are their gaps, where are there opportunities, and how do we build upon what's already there? Or maybe make some edits of things that are tired or aren't really working hard for us and confuse it. So it's not a complete redo of the whole garden, but looking out through the lens of the new homeowner, what are their priorities and how do we find space to meet those priorities? And then this homeowner, she really wants to learn how to garden. So she's really interested in her pots. She wants to have some raised beds and sells out there analyzing sun patterns and Honestly, where her irrigation was and where we could tie into for it to irrigate some raised beds. And so, there's a lot of big picture thinking, but then you have to drill it down to very practical of like, all right, where are we going to tie in the irrigation? Is this close enough to the kitchen for it to actually function for her? Because you don't want it to be super far away or she needs to run out and cut some parsley and she's got to trek halfway up the hill. I don't like to start with a practical and build the whole garden around that. I like to start with a bigger concept and drill my way down to that. In every garden, there's some wiggle room for editing and for kind of reimagining. I don't like to do a complete overhaul. I like to really assess what's there, what's working, and then where are the gaps and how can we use those gaps to reach our new priorities.
0: Okay, let's contrast a family or personal garden relationship with how maybe Mm -hmm. you approach a garden relationship in a public garden. Could you talk about that?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I worked for the Friends of Birmingham Botanical Gardens for about five and a half years. Before that, a lot of my internships had been in the public garden world, both in the U.S. and then also spent 10 months in the U.K. working in public gardens all across England and Scotland. I have a fair bit of experience in public gardens, but then the whole time I've been in Birmingham, I've been designing gardens for people as well. It's funny because in the public garden world, we're often trying to think about our visitorship, and what would draw them in. Most botanical gardens, it's a series of little gardens that make up a much wider garden. You have to think about the garden as a whole and how it flows. Then there's also priorities and ways that each garden flows within itself. When you work in a public garden, it's a very different scale of thinking because there's a hierarchy of paths. There's lots of different gardens that each have their own design intent and audience that they're trying to reach. When you're trying to create a garden that's reaching a community of lots of different type of people, it's very different than designing a garden for a very specific homeowner who uses it in a very specific way on a very specific site. In some ways, there's a lot of the thinking that it's probably like a Venn diagram, and there's a good bit of it that crosses over here in the middle of just like good sound design thinking. But then there are some ways that you approach it different, whereas I would probably walk and talk with a homeowner and try to hear what are things that they love, what are things that they don't love, where are some things that are causing them headaches. I don't really have the luxury of doing that at a public garden because I can't poll the entire community about a specific issue. It's my job to have my pulse on the community and what people would find interesting or what they're wanting to see or how we can push the envelope in certain ways. But you're not getting that very specific feedback to your questions, if that makes sense. And there were ways that we, we did surveys and we had a, a board and we had different committees that would guide certain decisions. And a lot of times I would talk to people out in the gardens, but it's just very different because a lot of people I would meet out in the gardens might be traveling through on their way to Florida to go to the beach from Michigan. They're looking at the garden very differently than someone who lives in Birmingham and likes to walk through the gardens every morning at 7 a.m. would be looking at the garden. In a homeowner, they're going to be using it for their daily lives, whereas at a public garden, we had to think about, okay, how would the entrance function for just a couple that's coming to visit the garden on their own? But how does it also function for our Antiques in the Gardens fundraiser where over a thousand people are going to be descending on the plaza within an hour of each other? (laughs) you're having to think it like lots of different scales because you're going to have big events at the gardens. You might have a wedding or a class that we're teaching, but you also have individuals coming to visit. There's a whole range there. I really found that participating in design for individuals and then also working in a public garden really helped me understand the other one in different ways, if that makes sense. The more I was out in the community, walking people's gardens with them, listening to them, it helped me understand my community in a new way that informed decisions we made at the Birmingham Botanical Gardens. The longer I worked at Botanical Gardens, I learned more about the landscape and different plants and how they changed through the seasons. And that gave me new knowledge to then approach people's personal gardens. As a public garden, you're trying to design something that will draw in the community as a whole. Whereas for someone's personal garden, I want it to be deeply personal to them. It's not meant to make everybody happy. It's to make the owners happy and um, for them to live a life that they love within this garden. It is a different posture even though there are some crossovers of the design approach.
0: How do you avoid coming up with a garden that's just a collection of plants?
1: That is the one that I wrestled with because at Birmingham Botanical Gardens, when I came on staff, I had studied horticulture and I had a master's in landscape architecture. I was tasked with the job of studying the history of each one of the 26 different gardens that made up the Birmingham Botanical Garden performing an assessment, and then really understanding where we wanted to take that garden into the future. Sometimes it meant getting that garden back to its original design intent. Sometimes it meant that we need to think about that garden in a different way than we thought about it in 1982 when it was built. It it was very specific to each one. Our rose garden, for instance, it's meant to be a collection of roses. So we had two rose gardens. One was the Dunn formal rose garden, but then there was also the Ireland old-fashioned rose garden the old fashioned rose garden, a lot of those roses aren't perpetuals. They don't keep blooming throughout the growing season. So there's a big bang of the bloom around Mother's Day. Then we really incorporated a ton of perennials into that garden. So there is like this continual interest throughout the season, but it wasn't necessarily roses. Then in the dun formal rose garden, it was all the modern hybrid roses. They all keep re blooming until our first killing frost. Really, the only time that garden is not in bloom is like. Tail end of November, December, January, February, we do our hard prune on them. And then March, April, they start growing again. We didn't really feel the pressure in that garden to incorporate these long seasonal bloomers in there. And there were other gardens that were more of just like a woodland garden. Our fern glade has a ton of ferns, but we incorporate tons of other woodland species in there that are companion plants. I do think there's a balance with collection gardens. On one hand, not being scared to let things. Just be beautiful and brilliant in the season that they're meant to be beautiful and brilliant. I remember hearing Troy Scott Smith, who's the head gardener at Sissinghurst, talk about how Sissinghurst lost some of its magic when it was bought by the National Trust. It became one of the most visited gardens in the whole National Trust, tried to make it beautiful every single day of the year. They started planting the rose garden with all this other stuff Like eroded what made that garden beautiful, purity of it. And so when he came in, they edited a lot of it out, but there was tons of see in the other parts of the gardens. Trying to make every single piece of your garden beautiful every single day of the year, you're gonna steal some of the magic. I don't tell people to go look at the Rose Garden in December because that's not the season for it. There is a balance. The Rose Garden is just dropped dead gorgeous in May, if you can make it then, but it also blooms all season until frost. frosts. Then I think there is another side of the coin where there are opportunities there's room to layer things in. We talk a lot of, in the gardening world about successional bloom and interest in a garden. It might be that you'd sense, like, okay, spring is lackluster. What can we do? Oh, really easy thing to do is incorporate bulbs. That's just a really quick, exciting layer that comes and goes rather quickly, but adds just another little pop of interest there. As a gardener, I would free yourself from having to make every inch of your garden interesting 365 days a year. It's just not possible. In areas where you're able, think about what's one thing where I could just raise the notch. That is a battle in the botanical garden world. People do come to learn about plants and there's value to having a labeled collection of different plants. The beauty of a collection is you have all the same type of plant near each other and you can compare them, which is valuable. But then you do run the risk of it being incredibly boring other times of years. Sometimes I think in our old-fashioned rose garden, made a lot of sense to incorporate other seasons of interest. Whereas in the formal rose garden, it would have completely eroded the beauty of that garden April through November if we tried to pack tons of stuff in there. So I think it just takes discernment to know, when is it right to push the envelope on succession and when do I need to hold back and let this be just a pure showstopper in its season?
0: When we see photos of gardens, we're just seeing just a static moment in time. Not realizing mm-hmm. the dynamics that garden goes through on a year-round basis. I think our expectations get to be where we want to have just that Southern living moment. And it's just beautiful <laughs> moment in time that we're enjoying. <laughs> we don't get to see the ugly sides of it.
1: Yeah, and I think something that, you know, like a Pete Old Wolf and people in the new perennial movement have taught us is that a oh, plant can be beautiful as it's dying. Just like the seed head and the colors that it changes, a lot of times we think, oh, it's yellow, it's oh, it's going over. I've tried to even get better about this. When you Google a plant, you're going to just see pictures of it when it's in its bloom, when it's at its peak time. But plants can be incredibly interesting just how they emerge from the ground and how they go over in a bed. As a gardener, I think it's our job to think of things not just in like that picture-perfect moment, but also how it emerges, how it goes over, how it changes through the whole time, and not just in that static moment.
0: You've trained as a horticulturalist and then as a landscape architect, both Mm -hmm. at Auburn. How do you reconcile those two schools of thought?
1: Ooh, that (laughs) I stumbled into that dichotomy. I didn't really realize in my head as a high school student, I was like, makes so much sense that they would send me through horticulture. And then I'll stay and do my graduate work in landscape architecture. But as I got into both worlds, I realized how siloed the horticulture world and the design world are from each other, oftentimes in the States. I guess the way that I've tried to reconcile that is I've worked both sides of the table, if that makes sense. I think a lot of times horticulturists with a legacy of working with designers can sometimes get frustrated because they'll be handed these plans that have a bunch of plants that are never going to work wherever it's been designed. Maybe a designer Googled it. I can look at that plant, but I see what they're going for. They're going for that texture. They want this to be a massing and have this light, airy texture in front of it. And it's just a matter of they chose the wrong plant. I think in a horticulturist mind, sometimes they discount the designer because they're looking at the practicality of it. It's incredibly impractical. Whereas when I was in the landscape architecture world you do feel like you're a second-rate designer compared to an architect and so you feel this need to posture yourself with the architects you try not posture yourself with maybe the landscaping industry you want people to see you as a really established designer and rightfully because you want people to take your work seriously but I think in some ways, as a profession, we've discounted the incredible amount of knowledge that people who've been at the landscaping industry or horticulturists for decades. Working as a horticulturist, I always say what I learned in the classroom in four years of horticulture, that only scratches the surface because you have to work and watch all things go into the ground and how they grow. I sometimes like to compare garden design with cooking, but it's like chefs get to have different ingredients and mix them together and cook with them, and then they can taste it right away, and they know if their idea worked or not. Whereas as a gardener, you have an idea, and you might design something that goes in the ground, you're like, okay, and now we get to wait sometimes many years until we know really if that all came together the way that we imagined that it would. So I think there's so much benefit to horticulturists really understanding the thought and the framework that designers are bringing to the table and valuing that and working together with them to be like, hey, I see where this design was coming from. This plant's never going to work, but what effect were you trying to create? And letting it be a conversation, but not discounting their whole idea because one piece of the equation might not work. I wish that there were more landscape architects that could look at horticulturists and really say, you have so much hands-on experience. That as a landscape architect, you shouldn't be expected to have all that because you have another area of expertise. I think the more that we all sit at the table together and value the other side of the table, we're going to be able to design landscapes and gardens and green spaces that just hit the ground in such a more meaningful way. That was why I really did everything that I could to study in the UK because I think it's the nature of just being a much smaller country. They have a long gardening heritage that. Most of their top garden designers are also some of their country's best plantsmen. That is just rare. Many of them trained at some of the top botanical institutions in the country, whether it was under RHS or at Kew, Edinburgh Botanic, you name it. Some of the top landscape architects over there have just an incredible horticultural pedigree as well. So they're able to marry design and plantsmanship together that makes these designs that just stand the test of time. I was just so drawn to what these gardens can make you feel. When I talk about the siloing of the two professions in America, that's a very general statement. There are definitely designers out there that are bridging that gap and standing there and, and do value the other side of the table and aren't scared to bring others in and elicit their expertise. But I think the more that we can do that, just the better that both professions are going to be.
0: Beyond your formal training that you had at Auburn, talked about training and having experience in Europe would you tell mm-hmm. us how that came about
1: yeah it's gosh if we want to back to where it really started I just had the best professors in horticulture who really just wanted to give us every opportunity they really stressed getting hands-on experience and having experiences outside of just Auburn Alabama to inform our education. And summer after my sophomore year, they had a study abroad program in England. And they took a group of us to the Midlands in England, to a little horticulture college in Pershore. And we took classes there. And then the professors there would load us up in vans a couple of times a week and take us to some of the greatest gardens in the whole world. So we were not only learning from some of the best, but we were also going and getting to walk and experience some of the greatest gardens in the whole world. So that experience, I realized, wow, this was life-changing. It helped me really see just the possibility of what's out there beyond. I just craved more experiences like that. So summer after my junior year, horticulture had this endowed trip called the Henry P. Orr trip. And each year they would take students to a different parts of the world. I think I had to pay like $300 and the rest was covered. The year that I went, we went to southern Italy. We flew into Rome and stayed there and went to tons of different little towns and visited gardens and studied green spaces. That was just incredible because I had the experience in England, but then getting to go to a different European country and learning about their garden history how in a completely different climate and how they gardened that was really impactful then I also had a scholarship that I used the fall after my senior year and I went to France for six weeks and studied gardens from Paris to Normandy, Roar Valley, French Alps and I also went to Provence just me in a backpack got to spend a lot of time in gardens that led up to me applying for this fellowship called the RHS Interchange Fellowship, which is a partnership between the Guard Club of America and the Royal Horticultural Society. This fellowship has had a couple of different forms, but it began right after World War II to foster British and American horticultural relations, the sharing of knowledge. And so each year the RHS chooses a fellow and the GCA chooses a fellow and you swap places. I had the honor of being chosen as the fellow for 2016 to 17. And when I was chosen, I was able to give them just a wish list of gardens and institutions I wanted to work at. Then they helped me put together a program based on my interests. Some of the gardens, I was, ooh, I would just die if I could work here. And some of them, okay, we were reading through what you were saying, what you're interested in. And my whole shtick was that I wanted to go to a country and learn from a place where they bridge the gap between horticulture and design they also put forth some ideas for placements that I wasn't even aware of that ended up just being amazing. That was how I was able to go to England for 10 months and having a visa just like pretty much all sorted out for you and having doors open through the fellowship just to work inside these top botanical institutions was just a dream come true. I knew what I hoped to get out of it going into it. What I returned home with was just so much more than I even thought I was going to get the same as the summer I worked at Winter tour, just having the opportunity to live at some of these gardens and work day in and day out with the people that are making decisions and helping to shepherd these gardens into their future. that was just so much different than buying a plane ticket and going over there and visiting the garden, and you're building relationships with people that I still to this day call them up and ask them questions or just catch up with them and while following what they're doing in their respective gardens. It really was just the opportunity of a lifetime.
0: Would you tell us about one of those gardens and the experience there and what made it so memorable?
1: Yes, each one was just so memorable in its own way. The garden I spent the longest at was Great Dixter in the south of England, which is where a lot of young people in the garden world it's somewhere that everyone kind of dreams of having the opportunity to work. Being able to be there close to four months was dream come true. I was there January until mid-April, which kind of seems like an odd time to be there because it's like the dead of winter. But it was just so fun getting to see how all the groundwork was laid for the magic that is Great Dixter, and it was also very different during that time of year. The garden is closed, so my last weekend at the garden was actually the spring plant fair weekend, which is when they had this huge plant fair, tons of the nurseries from all over Europe come and sell really rare and interesting plants. That kind of kicks off the season where the garden is open to the public. I actually never worked there while the garden was open to the public. What made Great Dixter so special was just not only the garden and just the rich history there with Christopher Lloyd and getting to work alongside Fergus, Fergus is a huge part of this, but just the students that were there at the same time as me were from all over the world, Sweden, Japan, Portugal, Germany, other parts of England. There were other Americans there as well. So it just was this melting pot of incredible gardening knowledge. And everyone came from different backgrounds. And they were also coming from completely different climates and ways of gardening, getting to divide perennials knelt down next to someone who gardens in Japan that was just like wow this is such a unique and amazing experience really was it Dixter that I was pushed in my understanding of what a garden was and what it could be because it's a garden that doesn't shy away from experimenting with ideas and really pushing the boundaries on color and combination and even just what they were growing from seed different things that they were breeding and selling in the nursery and ways that they were propagating it just was every facet of horticulture was present there at the highest standards but it was also group of people that didn't take themselves too seriously you were able just to ask questions uh, i've always remembered this is know, fergus was about to give some talk on zinnias i think i remember him looking at me and he asked me he was like what do you think i was like um I was just shocked that he was asking me a question and that was like so much about gardening and horticulture, and but you care what I think and what I know. And there was just this deep sense of curiosity that even Fergus could be argued to be like the most famous head gardener in the world at the moment. He just had this like childlike energy and curiosity about plants. That garden brought him so much life and killed him to have to go inside to send an email. He wanted to be outside with a digging fork in his hand. I just really learned... It really challenged me as a designer that some of the most incredible design thought happens when you have a digging fork in your hand. It doesn't necessarily happen when you have a pencil in your hand. That was really life-changing for me. Those friendships were just some of the sweetest, most amazing friends I've ever known. There is just a different bond that you have with people when you've gardened alongside them that you care deeply about the same thing. That was just really funny. I think I found my people. I love all my friends in Birmingham, but most of them aren't garden people. And so it's, I can talk about cultivars of muscari and you care and want to talk about it with me. And that was just so fun just to be immersed in that. We lived in a little farmhouse on the property and would go traveling on the weekends to different gardens. And visit different national collections. We went to go visit the witch hazel collection with Chris Lane and he grafts all these incredible varieties of witch hazels and has them all planted out in the field and you go in the depths of February when it's freezing cold and it's just glowing in the distance, just all these witch hazels in bloom. It was just such a fun experience, not only gardening alongside people, but then just living life with them and eating meals with them and traveling with them was just, yeah, such a gift.
0: In this hyper social media world that we live in today, what do you believe is the danger in watering down gardening concepts?
1: I think it's a danger anytime that you oversimplify something that is really beautiful in its complexity. And this goes back to sixth grade Molly. I was a dork and was on math team. I loved math. It used to bring me so much joy until sixth grade. I had this teacher and he really wanted us to Perform really well at these math tournaments. So he would teach us all these shortcuts. I would just sit at my kitchen table at night, and my dad's an engineer. He's really good at math, and he'd be trying to help me. And I just wouldn't understand the concept. I felt the weight of having to memorize all these little shortcuts. I feel like that when sometimes I read these magazine articles that are like 10 tricks to give your house some curb appeal. When in reality, you're not understanding the whole concept of what a garden is. There's so many different layers that you have to think to to get down to a specific decision that hits the ground in a meaningful way. So you're just giving people tips and tricks. For me, you're starting at the bottom of the funnel and just pumping out some little Band-Aid solutions that actually are not nearly as meaningful if you teach people the overarching concepts and how to drill down And make a decision that's best for their property for their garden a lot of times that's what i'm having to do with clients when i would go onto their property they're like i read this here or i printed off this pinterest article or i got this plant for free where can it go and so we're starting down at these very specific points or like a very specific plant and then trying to generate a whole framework around this very specific thing instead of starting with an overarching concept and framework and allowing that framework to drive these specific decisions. Especially with social media, there's just so much information at our disposal that it's also hard to sift through it all and know, okay, who can I trust? Who can I not? Gardening is also so regional. The way that someone gardens in Michigan is going to be very different than how I garden in Birmingham, Alabama. Our ground doesn't freeze here in the winter, so I can actually garden really well in December. I think that it's wonderful. I don't wanna detract from social media because for me, I love following a lot of my favorite British garden designers and seeing what they're doing. But doing that with a knowledge of, okay, let me take the effects that they're creating and try and translate it and apply it here. A lot of times I think there's an itch to directly apply something that might not make sense for your context. We can be discerning with social media and follow people that inspire you but do you think it's important, like the food that you eat, you know, what's your visual diet that you're on? Because what you're taking in, it is going to affect how you see things. I try and follow people who maybe push me in certain ways or do things that really inspire me, but kind of digesting that information in a way where you understand, okay, I've got to translate this and distill this to apply it to my specific context. It might not always directly apply and never losing that lens of that overarching framework instead of just gleaning all these tips and tricks because they're not going to get you to an overall picture that's really effective they might just put a band-aid over a specific need that you have don't discount social media but also be discerning with how you engage with it and and what you glean from it
0: how do you relate history to gardening
1: oh i'm a big garden history nerd the history of gardens you could say as you look at starting from just the beginning of the world to now how we garden is normally a direct outpouring of how well our worldview is as a society you can look back to like the medieval ages and they had walled gardens that were very ordered and symmetrical because they didn't know as much scientifically beyond the garden walls it was scary it was chaos we didn't want to engage with it but it was safe within the garden walls and there's the renaissance where it was like the enlightenment of man we're learning a lot more about nature and how to engage with it. There's this like humanism that comes to the fore. That's when you have the axis and there's these strong, symmetrical gardens as well, but it takes a turn from the medieval gardens. Then you have the English landscape movement where we decide we know a lot more about the landscape, so we don't necessarily have to control it within the walls of the garden. We can bring it into the garden. The further landscape is good. It's pushing back against this industrial age that we're living in. It's really interesting to look at the history of gardens. Within it, you can see the history of the world and humans' worldview, which I find really interesting. You can also just see different cultures. I'm so drawn to Japanese gardens, the way that they approach the art and all the history and the symbolism behind all their different types of gardens and their landscape. It gives you a window into their worldview and how they engage with the world. There's a lot to learn from that. And even just being like a Southerner, I love looking back at historic Southern landscapes. There's a nostalgia there. There's also a lot to learn from what was growing here when colonists first arrived and were riding and exploring this new flora of the new world that they didn't know. How did Native Americans use our native species in different ways? There's this huge push right now to the rewilding as we're facing a climate crisis. It's just interesting how our worldview and how we perceive our world also makes its way into the gardening world and how we decide to guard the land. I think history is incredibly valuable just to learn from things that have already been done, but then to also learn about how we as humans are viewing the world. Maybe there's some ways that we should look back and learn, and maybe there's ways that we have grown and we see it completely differently than people historically have. I think there's room for that, but I find it really interesting to dig in and learn about it.
0: How do you take a risk in a garden?
1: Ooh, I think Risk. It can come at a lot of different levels. It can come from just even deciding to build a garden that you're going to engage with <laughs> and that might um, take a little bit more input than you're used to giving. That's a big risk for some people. Maybe it's trying a plant that you aren't necessarily familiar with. Work a lot in a very specific part of town. has a lot of very affluent people and a lot of their yards look the exact same. They all have boxwoods with the hydrangeas, the same color palette, the same vines climbing up over their doorways. I love this one house because he took his driveway. It's meandering. And then there's meadow on both sides that's just smack in the heart of boxwood hydrangea land. And there's this beautiful flowery, grassy meadow. It's actually not flowers all year. Sometimes it's just grass. And so that's a huge risk. But I think he decided this is important to me. I want to take a risk in this way. And some people hate it and some people applaud him. But at the end of the day, it's his garden. He gets to do what he wants to do. So I think even just like style, sometimes adds a huge risk. You can choose to do what your neighbors are doing or you can push the boundary a little bit and try something different that you maybe don't see in your neck of the woods. Sometimes I think it's a risk to this day and age. We can control a lot of things with chemicals. And you might make the decision, I'm going to give up And I'm going to have some weeds in my garden, but it's, I'm going to take the risk and decide it's more important to me to not use chemicals. I just think there's a lot of different ways based on your priorities that you can take risk. I did some things at the gardens where our native plant garden was a huge area of my focus. We did a lot of editing. Sometimes there were some good plants that were in the wrong spot. We had to make the call. That is one of the most stunning magnolia macrophyllas I've ever seen. It is smack in the wrong place and we had to cut it down. That's a huge risk. You hate to see it. It might not always be the right call. It might be like, that's the most beautiful magnolia macrophylla I've ever seen, and we had designed the whole garden around it. But for what we needed, and it was on this sandstone outcropping glade, that is just not where a big leaf magnolia would be growing, not even in the wild. We wanted to create a meadow there, so we didn't want to confuse landscape typologies. That was the right call for us. I think risk, it just comes at a lot of different levels. Honestly, I think every garden is a risk in its own way if you look at it the right way because you can't completely control it because it is nature and it's going to grow. There's going to be a tornado that comes through. It might take down a tree. There'll be a Christmas frost that breaks all the records and kills lots of your plants. And you have to adapt to having a garden in the first place. You're opening yourself up for some risk because you can't control the whole thing
0: a client brings you a bad idea that you know just doesn't work but they're in love with the idea how do you overcome that
1: that takes some people skills because there's going to be some clients that bring you a bad idea but they're open for you to give your thought what i would try and do is find out why they were drawn to that idea there's always something below the surface maybe they really want a water feature i'll take my mom she really wanted a water feature in this one part of their house It just didn't make sense to me where she was saying she wanted it. I kept asking questions, and it turned out she liked the sound of water. I wasn't convinced she wanted the maintenance that came along with it, but she liked the sound of it. She liked the look of it. She liked the movement of it, that there was like something bubbling and the sound of it. I was like, well, it doesn't make sense on that part of the house because people just walk past it. You're not actually existing in that part of the garden. You can't see it from the road. You're just not going to get any of the benefits you're talking about. Once I started asking some questions, I was able to get the heart of what she was actually wanting and pivot the idea to something else that made much more sense. Did away with this big ornate fountain that would be a lot of maintenance. Showed her pictures of a bubbling rock. And I was like, what if this was a focal point here on this back terrace? We'd actually sit back here. You'd actually get the benefit of it. Might draw some birds. And there's a meadowy area below it. If I had completely just been like, a water feature is the silliest idea in the whole world and just discounted it, I would have missed out because I learned something. I was like, oh, we actually do need a focal point. I hadn't even been entertaining the thought of a water feature because I didn't know that she would be even interested in that. But once I asked some questions, I got to the heart of it. We were able to meet each other in the middle. Trying to have the posture that no idea is a bad idea, there's actually a beauty in I think it was like a Franklin Covey video that I watched one time and they would have these brainstorming meetings and you actually sell yourself short when people feel like an idea is too stupid to say out loud because sometimes the best ideas come from things that you would have never thought. When people feel like they have the freedom just to say anything and get it up there, you might end up calling it and saying, actually, that yeah, that is a bad idea. But having the freedom to just get ideas out and put them on the wall and let them have a voice and kind of get to the bottom and dig around in there and figure out if it does have merit or not. Even the design process, just the fact that you're not quelching someone's thinking process has a lot of merit to it. But sometimes there will be clients that maybe they are just like hell bent on a certain idea and you don't have the ability to sway them. They don't really want to hear other options. I think that's just a discernment thing of Maybe you just do it and say, okay, not what I would have done. Probably not going to go on my website. But at the end of the day, they paid me for a service and I was delivering them what they wanted, even though they weren't really listening to what I had to say. I've never run into that. People typically hire me because they trust what I'm going to bring to the table. I've been very lucky, but there might be some clients out there like that. Sometimes you might just have to be honest with them and should be like, hey, I think I might just be the wrong person for this job. I really want you all to find a designer that you see eye to eye with. And I think there's no shame of just being upfront and honest with them. Just, I don't think I'm going to be able to deliver actually the design that you are wanting. That's a service to them, too. That's how I see it, of just not sticking around just because you feel like you have to. But letting yourself go if you need to. (laughs)
0: What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden?
1: I wish, and I'm speaking to myself when I say this too, because I can sometimes like just go in with a very specific idea that comes to mind. But I wish sometimes people would start by asking different questions and allow that, kind of start with the big questions, the things that really matter. And allow those to drive you down to solutions that are going to actually speak to your biggest priorities. I think sometimes we're on vacation we take a picture of something we can't get that certain fence out of our mind or we really love the idea so i think sometimes we get stuck on these specifics that if we lift our gaze a little bit off of the specifics and start with some bigger questions and allow that to drive us down we'd end up in a better spot and sometimes there are very specific issues that you just have questions over and that's okay my boss probably got annoyed with me at the gardens because I can remember I got pulled into this meeting where there was a failing retaining wall on our herb terrace. We were meeting with the mason just to be like, okay, how do we rebuild this wall? And as I stood there, I stepped back. And I was like, hold on. These terraces here are actually an incredibly important connection between the vegetable garden and the camellia garden. Actually, this whole hillside is like dead space that we're not engaging that we could if we had a better connection right here can we think about this a little bit differently than just here's the issue, failing retaining walls, let's fix that issue. It ended up turning into this project where we've redesigned the whole herb terrace and activated a whole new part of the garden to create a fruit orchard. We haven't had any fruit trees really on the property. May lost sense with it being by the vegetable garden, the herb garden. But it was because standing there and not just asking the question, how do we fix the failing retaining walls, but asking the question of how could this serve as An incredible connection point of a bunch of different gardens here on this hillside. That completely changed the way that we approached that garden. If you ever feel yourself zooming in on a very little issue, maybe zoom out and try and see what are some bigger opportunities here and how can those help inform this smaller decision. Then we would have gardens instead of being a collection of a bunch of little ideas, it would be one idea that's carried out with such clarity and beauty at the detailed level
0: what's a garden myth you'd like to smash
1: the idea of a black thumb i just have lots of friends who tell me they can't keep anything alive they just have a brown thumb or a black thumb i just don't buy that idea because i have killed so many plants in my lifetime if you care enough it takes some trial and error but every plant that you kill you learn something if you see an opportunity to learn something about that plant then It's not in vain and you're only going to get better. There are some people that have an innate sense and a green thumb. I would say I'm not one of them. I've had to really work at knowing and learning and understanding plants. The more that you're around them, the more you get to know them, the more you kill, the more you learn. So I would just say if you feel like I just wasn't sprinkled with the magic pixie dust of having a green thumb, there's no use in trying. I'm going to kill everything. I would say, Prove me wrong, but I just think that if you care enough and you work at it hard enough, you can learn and that anyone is capable of having a green thumb. It just takes time. And it's not just like a magical thing that you're endowed with, but it's actually a craft that you perfect over time.
0: Yeah, I like to say their brown thumb or black thumb hasn't germinated yet.
1: Yeah, oh, I like that.
0: What is your earliest garden memory?
1: There's kind of two branches to this. My childhood, when I think about it, was just spent in the woods. I'm the middle of three girls, and we're all very close in age. Lived out in the country. We would just go play in the woods all day, every day. That's where I fell in love with the landscape. Wasn't necessarily a garden, but we would use our imaginations to create. We would make a fort and build a house or play in the creek. I loved the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. I almost found any way to turn anything into Narnia. Just that, children being in the woods and using their imaginations to create, that in essence is what a garden is. You're in nature and you're using your imagination to create something. Responding to what is already there in a way with your imagination. That's probably the first time I exercised my gardening side of my brain. Then we also, both of my grandmothers were gardeners. One that's in Atlanta is still alive and then my mom's mom was an incredible gardener she grew up during the Great Depression, and her mom passed away when she was a young age, so she basically raised her younger siblings, and they had to grow food to live. She was just this incredible vegetable gardener, and my grandfather was as well. It was their livelihood, but they also loved it. Then my other grandmother just had a beautiful woodland garden, still does, in Atlanta. I guess I just have these childhood memories associated with their gardens and their landscape. As a family, we always went to Callaway Gardens. So I can just remember going into the butterfly house and it being this like magical tropical land with butterflies flying everywhere and riding our bikes through all the azaleas in bloom and going into the, what was it called? The horticulture. It was like the, all the big Sib- greenhouses. Sibley Center. Sibley. Yes. The Sibley, the horticulture center. Just, they would always have like fun topiaries and this massive waterfall with all these intricate plantings all around them. That's probably one of my first childhood memories in like a public garden. That was probably the first time I'd ever heard the word horticulture. I think I just had a childhood that was spent outside, and that's really where I fell in love with gardens. When you're outside, there's just so much room for your imagination to go wild.
0: Why did you decide to pursue horticulture and landscape profession?
1: I went into horticulture really as a means to an end. They didn't have a bachelor's of landscape architecture at Auburn. I knew I wanted to do landscape architecture, but at the time they sent you through the horticulture programs. I went down and toured horticulture, and just the second I met the professors and got a taste of the program, I was hooked. I declared horticulture and never looked back, and then continued on to get my master's in landscape architecture. So it was a happy accident. It was means to an end, but then just fell head over heels for it.
0: Do you have a funny garden story you can tell us?
1: Yes. It's very funny, but also probably one of the biggest teaching moments of my life. was actually at Great Dixter and me, and one of my friends, we were tasked with the job of pruning the Ilex Golden King that's at the end of the iconic long border at Dixter. I didn't really realize this was a very stressful job, but Fergus explained to us like, okay, you just get the ladder and you are on the tree and you're just going to take your secateurs and you're just going to do your arms at a right angle. You're just going to clip up in a straight line. It seems so simple when he was doing it, but then he goes along with some other students and me and my friend are left doing it. Apparently, we were doing it not right. Fergus came back and he was like, oh, no. He was trying not to make us feel bad. he was like, all right, here's what you're going to do. We like gave another go. Still wasn't right. The next thing we know, Fergus is around in the corner and he's, get the hedge trimmer. And my friend's screaming, not the hedge trimmer. It was like all very dramatic and stressful. And right then, Luciano, who's one of the greatest garden designers of all time I have his book I've he's been an idol of mine he like pops out from around the hedge and we get introduced while I'm like dangling from this ladder eight feet in the air with my pruners in my hand I'm massacring apparently this holly that one's we laughed about it after then we ended up being able to do it and they didn't have to get the hedge trimmer but we still laugh about him screaming get the hedge trimmer Dean's dangling from his ladder and is no I actually keep this frame on my desk. Fergus actually drew this, but he was trying to show us how we were going to take out the bumps in the holly tree by pruning it. I keep that frame there just to be like, okay that was like a huge mistake. I didn't do it right. But at the end of the day, I was on the ladder and I gave it a go and I might not have done it right. But what matters is that I was trying and that you're sometimes going to fail at things. And I keep that on my desk just to remind me to get on the ladder, even if I don't know how to do it while I'm scared and intimidated and maybe doing it wrong. But it matters that I'm doing it because I can be a perfectionist sometimes. And so that's one of my favorite garden stories, just being in the trenches with a friend and royally messing up at one of the world's most iconic gardens. But at the end of the day, still doing it and being the one on the ladder with the pruners in your hand.
0: What is your most treasured garden advice that someone gave you that you still use today?
1: I know I've talked about Dixter a lot, but the day I was leaving, I was just like sobbing. I had a train to catch Fergus found me and I was trying to say bye to him. I just remember him grabbing me. I think he ends a lot of his talks this way too, but he said, always be generous with the way that you garden and the way that you share it with other people. I've just always remembered that because even as a southerner, the southern hospitality, I think there can be a feeling of holding on to things that you've learned because it could be your leg up in the industry. I've always just found, and Fergus just demonstrated this in so many ways, he could have run that garden with maybe two or three other gardeners and it would have been a beautiful garden he was always welcoming more and more students in to share his knowledge with and opening it to the world. He's always jetting off to give talks to inspire more and more people and sharing that love with other people. We don't lose when we share, what we've gained with other people. In a weird way, it multiplies itself. I hope I always garden in that way and run my studio in that way that I am being generous of the way that I garden.
0: In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer?
1: One name doesn't come to mind. I think what comes to mind is there have just been this trail of people. And I think they all have a common thread of the people behind the scenes that have given me time and opportunities that has just been so invaluable in my professional career. I can think of horticulture professors that were unsung heroes, but slaved for us to have certain opportunities and to open doors for us and teach us. I've had bosses that trusted me when I Quite honestly, didn't trust myself. They knew that I was capable and could do it and believed in me and gave me opportunities. Even through different internships, the gardeners, a lot of times they could have done a task so much quicker without me trailing behind them than having to teach me certain things. People who just always were never too busy and never too hurried slowed down to welcome me in and give me certain opportunities or to teach me certain things. I just feel really grateful just for everyone that's done that for me.
0: What have you recently learned about horticulture or gardening?
1: My friends are probably tired of me telling them about this, but I feel like a recent endeavor in my horticulture journey has been learning about geology because <laughs> I got turned on to this app called Rocked. It has this awesome interactive map and you can go in and see exactly where you're standing, what seams of rock you're on. I just love worrying about could that dictates what kind of soil you have which then dictates what kind of plants will grow especially thinking about native plants and like wider tracts of land and how that affects certain things that's been a surprising turn for me in my horticulture journey is really caring about geology so that's been really fun
0: that's interesting i didn't know they had that
1: yeah you'll have to download it. it's rocks like r-o-c-k then d
0: i would like for you to complete this statement in my garden i have
1: in my garden, I have lots of opportunity <laughs> because I think my garden turned out hit pretty hard with the frost and we just made the call to rip a lot of things out. Right now I'm at the drawing table. I just got a fresh survey back from engineers. We're ready to redesign some things. So I'm pretty excited about all the opportunity that is in my garden right now.
0: What plant are you in love with this week?
1: This week, it has hands down been white cloud muley grass. It felt like almost overnight it just came out in all of its glory. I love the white cloud muley. It's your standard muley grass, but white instead of pink. I have it planted right where the sun sets behind it. So at night it just glows as the sun is going down. That's been a recent obsession. I've taken so many pictures of it because <laughs> it changes so much with the light throughout the day.
0: All right, We lost a friend and a rising superstar. In the gardening world this last summer. Would you like to pay tribute to him?
1: Yes, we both knew Will Hembry Tragically lost him this summer. He actually was the fellow with the RHS Interchange Fellowship the year before me. He was one of his horticulture friends that for two years we emailed a lot and stayed in touch over Instagram, and he helped me as I was planning my program for the year that I was the fellow. He was witty and funny, and one of those people that was just blessed with the ability to. Once he heard a Latin name of a plant, I don't think he ever forgot it. Incredibly talented and spent so much time in the wild learning about plants, a rising star in the horticultural world. I know there's so many that knew him and loved him and actions at his service. It was just amazing. All, All people that showed up couldn't even fit into the room just to honor him. He'll be. Dearly miss, but even in his thirty years, he made such a huge impact, just on people personally, but also in the horticulture world. We will deeply miss him, and just so grateful to have crossed paths with him.
0: Molly, tell us how people may connect with you. You
1: can connect with me on Instagram, is where I'm most active um, right now. Just my personal account at Molly's Hendry with two L's. And then I also have my studio Instagram that will be up and running here in the next couple of months. It's just at Roots and Rambling. My website as well, it's rootsandramblings.com. It's also in the works, but there is a site there with some of the services I offer and work I've done. So I'd love to connect with you there as well.
0: This has been episode 135, Roots and Ramblings, Cultivating Harmony in the Garden with Molly Hendry. Thank you, Molly. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time.